the harder we fight for gender equality, the easier it becomes for the next generation. And I do have the sense that the generation of young women coming up now are very knowing about all of this, and they're very impatient. They're looking at us and saying, you know, can you get this done? Like, what have you been doing all these years? Welcome to Cambridge Forum. And today we're honoured to be talking to Julia Gillard, the former Prime Minister of Australia. Julia has just published a new and fascinating book entitled Women and Leadership, which she co-authored with Ngozi Ongonjo Iwela. I'm Mary Stack, Director of Cambridge Forum. In the book, Gillard draws on her own personal experiences, observations and research in political life, which she augments with conversations with some of the world's top female leaders, including Jacinda Ardern, Hillary Rodham Clinton, Christine Lagarde, Michelle Bachelet, and Theresa May. She explores gender bias and asks, why are there just so few women in leadership roles? Can we switch now to the idea about women, who they are, who they're molded to be by society? I think about people like Boris Johnson, who has perfected the image of the buffoon. He goes around with the, the, you know, the crazy hair, deliberately crazied, uh, on a bicycle. And I just try and translate a woman in that position, a crazy woman with tussled hair going around on a bicycle. And I think of the fact that she'd probably be locked up. I, I just... <laughs> can't translate those two things. Oh, here comes the Prime Minister, whereas Jacinta, what, she bicycles around Auckland. Uh, it's quite acceptable. So that, how much is the cultural thing, what one expects from a woman, and how much in the image sense does one have to fulfil and deliver on that? Yes, we um, examine all of this in a chapter that we call All About the Hair, and we uh, <laughs> named, it, named it that because of uh, Hillary Clinton, who has famously joked uh, that in her period as Secretary of State working with President Obama, she visited 112 countries and it was still all about the hair. The press was interested <laughs> in what her hair looked like when she came <laughs> off the plane. And she That's wanted right. to call her book about that period in her life the Scrunchy Chronicles, you know, the <laughs> elastic band scrunchies. Um, so, you know, when we, when we unpack all of this, I think, you know, in truth, if we were all honest with each other, uh, if we played an experiment with people and when they were nice and relaxed and said, close your eyes and, you know, don't think of a specific person, but think of the kind of person who's prime minister or president, think of the kind of person who's a CEO of a business, think of the kind of person who's a military leader. Uh, what people would think of is they would think for the first view of a man in a suit, a white man in a suit, and for the last one, the military leader, they would think of a man in a uniform. Um, you know, that is our standard image of leadership. And complete with that standard image of leadership, around the world comes a standard uniform. We expect male leaders to be in a suit, and in other cultures and contexts, there will be an adaptation. So, for example, uh, President Modi has his uh, traditional Indian dress that he wears every time you see him. Uh, so their appearance is unvarying. It's not that interesting. You know, maybe a tie will change, the colour of a shirt will change, but not much else. Uh, for women, 
because we're not in this traditional mode of leadership and we dress differently. Each of the women leaders that we talked to talked about the way they had thought about and tried to manage the disproportionate interest in what they wore, that the risk each and every day was that they would be going out to talk very seriously about the economy or healthcare or national security or foreign policy or whatever, and the headlines would be about what they were wearing. And I lived through that experience myself. The first overseas trip I took as Prime Minister, I went to Afghanistan to visit our troops who were fighting there. I went to Brussels to meet with the Secretary General of NATO to talk about our strategy in fighting that war. And literally the first reports in Australia were, you know, Julia Gillard arrives at NATO headquarters wearing a short white jacket and black pants, you know. I wasn't, I wasn't going to a ball, I wasn't going to a party, I was going to a security headquarters to talk about a military strategy and still the interest was in my appearance. And the women had different reactions to this. Some of them went out of their way to get a very standard look, their own kind of uniform so that their appearance didn't change much from day to day. Now, the uniform might be a Hillary Clinton pantsuit, but for Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, for my co-author Ngozi, for Joyce Bander, it is traditional African dress. But they wear the same, same style of thing every day to try and close down people talking about their appearance. Theresa May took a different approach. She's interested in fashion. She likes fashion. It's a bit of a hobby. And so she wears fashionable clothes, um, including, you know, she particularly likes shoes. And she's got that one wonderful anecdote about how it interested a young woman in politics. So that's fantastic. Mm. You know, we end up concluding out of this, look, there's no right way of handling these questions. There's no how-to manual. Uh, women have to make their own decisions. And some women, um, you know, would say, look, you know, the last thing I want to do each and every day is puzzle through what I'm going to wear. I'd be much happier to just get a standard look. Some women will say, look, you know, it gives me joy uh, to follow fashion and to get the new looks and to wear the new looks. And I don't want to lose that aspect of my personality. There's no right answer. But women, as they make their ch those choices, uh, do need to recognise that, unfortunately, in today's world, there will still be a consequence of those decisions. If you are a woman who uh, is very forward uh, fashion leaning, then part of what is said about you as a leader will always be about the fashion. And even when you're not particularly trying to cause that, um, there mm -hmm. is a risk of that. You know, I've, for example, seen stories as uh, the new administration in the US has taken office, President Biden, Vice President Harris. There have been a various, a various pieces, not just in fashion magazines, but in new, newspapers like the New York Times, uh, talking about what Vice President Harris is wearing. Uh, we haven't had a grand analysis of Joe Biden's suits. <laughs> and Vice President Harris is someone who pretty much um, has a bit of a uniform. She, you know, goes for the suits, predominantly uh, trouser suits. She tends to wear uh, the more comfortable shoes. Uh, that's been a feature of her campaigning, that she's been in the runners um, doing, you know, heaps and heaps of things each and every day. But I don't think you would say she's someone who's trying to foreground her fashion, yet people are talking mm -hmm. about her appearance. Mm -hmm. Okay, we've got some questions for you here. 
how can a woman with progressive ideas and passionate enthusiasm for positive change, but no business experience, differentiate herself from the crowd? It's difficult, if not impossible, to command respect when one's resume is the successful raising of kids. Um, I, uh, I probably would need a little bit more information to answer that question very specifically. Depends where you're, uh, what you're trying to do, um, mm -hmm. where you want to be a leader. I mean, mm -hmm. some occupations rightly uh, require economic experience before people are going to be um, given an opportunity. My co-author, for example, Ngozi, has spent 20 years at the World Bank, rising to the second highest position in the World Bank. She was able to do that because she's an economist and she's a mother and an economist. Um, if uh, in other contexts where those skills aren't being required, but somehow they're being viewed as a badge of intelligence, whereas doing other things um, that uh, women are more likely to do are being dismissed as not giving them the relevant skills, then we've obviously got to contest uh, those weightings. Uh, we do know that across the workforce, there is an undervaluing of women's skills. Uh, you know, in Australia, when I was Prime Minister, we had a historic equal pay case for women who work in the social and community services sector. So women who are social workers uh, and other like occupations, these are people with university degrees. And yet when we compared their earnings with other uh, areas of the labour market where people had university degrees, they were on average getting paid 30 or 40% less. So it's telling you that we tend to undervalue caring skills. We just go, oh, they're somehow innate in women, so they don't really have to be paid for. Mm -hmm. I think we've got to upend that analysis. We've got some more really good questions here. Often as women, we do not see ourselves as worthy. It goes beyond the imposter syndrome it is as though we have an unworthiness gene. Who am I to do this? Can you speak to this? I hope that one of the things that gives people heart in the book is that uh, the women leaders we spoke to all owned up very frankly to having doubts. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I think one of the things with um, role modelling, we talk about the importance of role modelling. You can't see it. You can't be it if you can't see it. But I do think sometimes we underestimate the gap that women look, uh, young women, uh, look at women who are at the pinnacle of their achievement. For example, they might be looking at uh, Kamala Harris now and they might be saying to themselves, oh, my God, I could never be like her. You know, I could never do what she's done. And what they're uh, missing is, is two things. You know, women leaders' heads are often full of doubts as well. And second, uh, she didn't, you know, uh, fall out of the sky into the chair as vice president. Uh, she had a long career of getting more and more skilled and more and more good at what she did and more and more visible, which ultimately meant that she came through uh, into contention to be vice president, then was selected and elected. Uh, so, you know, having those doubting voices in your head uh, shouldn't, shouldn't be uh, a game changer. It shouldn't say to you, oh, I've got a voice of doubt, therefore I can't do it. Uh, women who have done the most amazing thing live with that voice of doubt. And actually modern research about the best styles of leadership, what leadership is actually correlated with the best outcomes, is increasingly telling us that the 
you know, swaggering, I've got this, I know it all, I don't need to listen to experts, you know, I'll just go and do it, that that style of leadership doesn't get as good outcomes as leaders who are self-doubting, who are prepared to ask the next question, who keep their curiosity, who look to and rely on their team, that ultimately that style of leadership is correlated with better outcomes. And if you wanted to snapshot the leadership story of the pandemic, I think you can snapshot it like that. The blustering male, ultra macho, swaggering style of uh, this virus, you know, I'm going to get it licked. That style of leadership hasn't won through. Uh, what has won through is the more cautious, careful, listen to the expert style of leadership. So don't necessarily view your doubts as a negative. They could be helping you to be a better leader. Also, I can't resist saying this because you've quoted such great examples of women really usually going above and beyond because they have to be better than their male equivalent. It's not enough to be equal to, you usually have to be better than. And of course the glaring anomaly is Mr. Trump who <laughs> went into politics with zip experience uh, based on being a, a game show host. So um, Bluster carries you uh, a good deal in this culture or certainly did, but luckily that has uh, ceased to be the case. Um, okay, three more questions. I think this is quite fun. Who are the most powerful women leaders today? Where do you rank Lady Gaga, Hillary Clinton, um, Melinda Gates, the new poet laureate? Is there really any trait that they have in common? It's a good question. Yeah, I mean, uh, when we talk about uh, power, uh, we uh, obviously uh, think often about political power, about structural power, about being in the office of president or prime minister. Um, in the book, uh, we uh, interviewed political leaders. Uh, we didn't do that because the book is all about politics. We did it because we thought the spotlight on the gendered experience is whitest and hottest in politics, but we could learn from that for other walks of life. But I think we all know power is much more diffuse in our societies than just the people who are at the apex of various structures, uh, parliaments, uh, businesses. Uh, you know, Lady Gaga has, uh, you know, power through social media influence, through cultural influence, and that is important in our societies. And so uh, I think in some ways that is challenging us to broaden the category of who is a leader from the very stereotypical you are a leader if the position that you hold is a formal one which carries authority and leadership you can be a leader in many different ways as to would and would those women um, have something in common I suspect uh, what they've got in common is a sense of passion and purpose. They've been driven uh, to achieve in the fields that they've chosen. I think they've probably got in common uh, a sense of uh, self-doubt as they go about that, that they're, um, that they're not blusterers, that they're people who have uh, focused, worked hard, honed their craft, um, and uh, always you know, taken that very, very seriously. And I would hope too uh, that uh, each of them has a view about how they can use their power uh, to role model and to change circumstances for women. Okay, somebody has written, Sarah Mills has written a good question. 
How do you think a strong, qualified woman on a board can best influence the men who only think she is way out of her league and who dismiss every suggestion she makes? Ooh, that's, well, that's, uh, yeah, that's a re really tough one. Um, and it's uh, very tough for women uh, when they're the one woman in the room. Uh, we quote uh, research in the book. I love this piece of research. I think it's so telling uh, that if you have a group of five people who are trying to make a decision, uh, it is only when four out of the five are women that women will get a fair share of the talking time. Or to put it the other way, if there's more than one man, the men will dominate the talking time. They'll take more than their fair share of the talking time. What changes that dynamic is if the decision-making structure of the group is expressly consensus, not majority rules or loudest voice. So if you tell a group of five people, you have to come up with a consensus decision, then people will adapt their behaviours so that everybody in the group gets to have a say, otherwise they can't work out if there's consensus. So I think pointing to pieces of research like that and uh, urging uh, structures, whether they be corporate boards or anything else, to adopt a more consensual style uh, might be one place to start. There's also good research to show uh, that uh, diverse teams uh, make better decisions, uh, that teams that are full of similar people, uh, you know, all men from similar backgrounds will not make the same quality of decisions as if there's a diversity of voices. And that's true in the corporate world and research does show that. But I'd also be trying to find a way to add to the number of women on the board uh, and, you know, we, we unpack in the book um, expectations around corporations and it was true when the campaigns first started to get women on corporate boards that uh, corporations could say to themselves, oh, that gender equality thing, we fixed it, we've got one woman on the board. But now consumer expectations and investors' expectations are changing uh, to be much more pressing on having a gender equal and diverse board. So I'd be trying to channel some of that energy to get more women on the board. Good points there. Uh, another question. What impact do you hope your book, your compilation of the wisdom of a myriad of powerful women across the world, might have on American women disenfranchised women, poor women, young immigrant women? What's the advice for young women who are trapped by society? Well, we hope that our book can uh, speak to uh, women in every circumstance. Whilst it is unashamedly a book about women and leadership in exploring um, every obstacle that women have struck on their pathways to power, uh, I think there are things that we talk about in the book that would resonate with every woman's experience, uh, how she was treated as a child, uh, how she formed her expectations about what she would do with her life, uh, how she manages um, or finds very hard uh, putting together work and family life how there have been times when she's been dismissed or marginalised, not listened to, not heard. There's not an example in the book of uh, a leader uh, that has come forward uh, in a, who raises both 
um, sexism and racism. So, of course, we talk to African leaders, but of African nations. There's not a uh, Kamala Harris or Barack Obama style equivalent, someone who came to leadership who wasn't of the dominant racial group of their society. Uh, but given uh, the lifetime experience of my co-author Ngozi and some of the things that Joyce Bander and Ellen Johnson Sirleaf talk about uh, as they about being received as a black woman in the world. I hope that there are some things in there that uh, women of colour also find resonate with their experiences. So when I was looking at who did what when in the world in terms of we, women's elections and leadership, I was kind of amazed about Sri Lanka being the, one of the first countries to elect a woman prime minister in the 1960, I think it was. And then both India and Pakistan had long-serving prime ministers, Indira Gandhi and Benazir Bhutto, which you pointed out, and I never knew. Theresa May was, was uh, introduced to her husband at Oxford by Benazir Bhutto. They were classmates. <laughs> a bit of trivia there, which found, I found that was fascinating. Anyway. I wouldn't have thought that these were necessarily the most progressive countries, uh, certainly not in their societal norms, yet they allow women leaders. It strikes me as so strange and anomalous. And yet here we are for the very first time in the so-called advanced democracy with our very first vice president who's a woman. So do you have anything that you can add to that? I mean, do you have any even opinions about why yeah, that? Sure. Uh in talking to the women, um, when, we, when we first started thinking through who would we interview, how would we do the book, we knew we definitely wanted to speak to women in different cultures and contexts. We wanted to try and dig into how much uh, impact does culture and context have and how much is, is common to women around the world. And, you know, at first glance, you would say to yourself, you know, what on earth can Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who um, you know, came from a poor family. Her father died when she was young. Her family was therefore in a very dire economic circumstances. Uh, during her life, she's been imprisoned. She's been exiled. What on earth can she have in common with Erna Solberg, the prime minister of Norway, Norway being one of the wealthiest countries on earth? Uh, and of course, so much is different. And yet when you get those two women talking, as we do in the book, there will be shared moments of experience simply because they're, they're women. And so, uh, you know, this analysis of different cultures, contexts and gender takes us into places we may not have expected. And I think it's easy, too easy for us from countries like the US and countries like Australia to assume that our societies are better on these things than countries that we would look at and say are still developing economies. But, you know, if it, just in the, the team that authored this book, uh, me and my co-author Ngozi, I've told you my story. Uh, Ngozi grew up in Nigeria. Both of her uh, parents uh, were academics. Both of them were PhD holders. And I think if people first saw our photographs, um, they would, if, you'd, if we did a little game with people and said, uh, these are the backgrounds of the women, these are the photographs of the women, put the back, match them, put the background with the woman, I think many people would be far more likely to pin the PhD holding parents on me than on Ngozi. 
you know, Ngozi and I have been doing a variety of, uh, of engagements and appearances uh, for the book. And Ngozi, as an economist, has been joking. Uh, thank goodness the US has finally caught up with Nigeria in having a woman, <laughs> a woman Treasury Secretary, a woman Finance Minister. You've got Janet Yellen. Uh, Ngozi was the first female to lead uh, finance the comparable portfolio in Nigeria, and she's been succeeded by two other women. Uh, so, you know, don't uh, don't do the snapshot. Actually, dig into the facts. And a great way of doing that is to look at the World Economic Forum uh, rankings of gender equality. Each year, they bring out a very sophisticated analysis of progress in gender equality, and they break it down country by country. And yes, you know, the countries at the top are kind of the countries that you would expect, uh, you know, the Norway, Finland, countries like that. But when you start looking through the batting order, uh, I'd invite you, for example, to look at the comparative rankings of countries like Chile, where Michelle Bachelet is from, and the United States. Uh, and I think some things will be revealed when people start looking at those rankings. Interesting point. Okay, there's a couple of really good uh, comments down here. The recording of this program should be widely shared with every young woman who we know who wants to learn about successful leadership in addition to reading the book. So kudos to you. How do you awaken aspirations to leadership in young women? Does it start with the parents? I think it does start with the parents and uh, you know, in the chapter I talked about before, You Go Girl, parental influences were very key. But it, it can't, you know, end with the parents because kids go out into the world and other influences come into uh, play. So uh, what is being said in school, what is being said in literature, in movies, in films, uh, all of this seeps through into uh, kids' uh, brains. And even when you are trying to role model at home very gender equal conduct, uh, kids can pick these things up. I recount in the book uh, a very humorous conversation I overheard at an airport uh, where with the you know absolute certainty of a seven or eight-year-old girl, I saw a girl saying to her mother, but pink is for girls. And, you know, this very frustrated mother trying to say, but daddy's got a pink shirt, you know. So um, there's no way that that young girl learned pink is for girls in her family home, but she's picked it up somewhere and she's picked it up quite deeply because she was arguing the toss with her mother and she was well on her way to winning the argument, you know, at the ripe old age of seven. Um, so uh, we, we have to, uh, have to be uh, clear about all of the influences and the role modelling effect. I mean, if, if at any time uh, in a girl's growing up, she's looking at the institutions in her society, uh, the person who comes on the TV, who's the prime minister or the president is always a man. Uh, the person mm. who comes on to give you the stock exchange report and tell you what's what in the economy is always a man. Uh, the person who at a time of a crisis or civil disturbance comes on and is always a man in a uniform, a police officer or a military uh, personnel who tells you, look, you know, in this natural disaster, people now need to do X and Y. Um, is it surprising uh, that that young girl then gets in her head that, you know, these are things that men do, not things that women do. What's optimistic about that, and I think we've always got to find the optimism, 
is that this can change. It does change. The experiences of society with more women leaders tells us that it changes. And so the harder we fight for gender equality, the easier it becomes for the next generation. And I do have the sense that the generation of young women coming up now are very knowing about all of this and they're very impatient. Mm. Uh, They're looking at us and saying, you know, can you get this done? Like, what have you been doing all these years? We're not going to live in a world of this kind of nonsense. We want it broken down. We want it changed. We want it equal. And we should feel that as a challenge. We should be very responsive to their impatience because they're right to be impatient. That's wonderful. The new book, Women in Leadership, is out now. Julia Gillard, former Prime Minister of Australia. Thanks, Julia. Thank you so much. That was a delightful conversation. Thank you. I also want to thank Herbert and Dorothy Vetter's generosity, the Lowell Institute, the Massachusetts Cultural Council, and all of you who helped donate. So you can go to the website to do this, www.cambridgeforum.org, where you will find a podcast of this shortly and other forums, as well as details of future programs. So thank you, everyone, for joining us. 